This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents... The American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the theater. This seminar, producing. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. These Working in the Theatre Seminars bring you a unique look at what it is to work in the theatre. What it is to work in the theatre from the viewpoint of the performer, the playwright, the director, the composer, the lyricist, and the agent. This all provides invaluable insight and expertise for theater students and theater professionals and theater goers is like. The American Theater Wing, as many of you know, and you've heard me say it over and over again, is founder and presenter of the theater's highest honor, the Antoinette Perry Tony Award. It's given for distinguished achievement in the theater. It's not given for the longest run or the, or the highest accolade of a critic, but it's given for those people in the theater who have achieved excellence in the craft of theater. And although we are very, very proud of the Tony Award, it was created in honor of a woman named Antoinette Perry, who believed very strongly in the art of theater and in preparing for the theater. And that's one of the reasons we do these seminars, so that you get a view of the performance, as I said, and everybody that works in the theater so that there is a collaborative event that takes place for you that brings the magic of live theater. The wing has many year-round programs, and one of them is a hospital program. We bring live theater to hospitals, nursing homes, and aid centers. We also have a wonderful, wonderful new program that's now in its third season, and it's called Introduction to Broadway. And it is just that. It introduces young people to Broadway, to a Broadway theater. It's done in conjunction with the New York Board of Education and the wonderful generosity of the producers who make available to the wing tickets. And we, in turn, work with the students at the schools. Each student pays for a ticket. That's part of the program. They must get into the habit of buying a ticket and preparing themselves to go to the theater. We also arrange for them to have a discussion group afterwards with the cast and the crew of the theater, which is not only enlightening to them, but they're role models that they can aspire to. 
These seminars are based on the Wings School, and it was a time when people came back from the Second World War and they retooled their trade. They were able to go from one room to another learning about the art of theater. And so we have brought these here to help create the same kind of knowledge to be shared by the people on the panel and with you. We have, we have a, one on the performance, we have one on the play script director, and today's seminar is on the production. Our co-moderators are Brendan Gill, who has been known to us from the New Yorker magazine, and he is an author and a critic and a member of the board of directors of the American Theatre Wing, and George White, who is president of the O'Neill Theatre Center and is a director as well and a great friend of the American Theatre Wing. And today's seminar is on that exciting production, The Kiss of the Spider Woman. I hope that you will enjoy and learn a great deal of what it, what it took to bring this to Broadway. Thank you all for being here. Right, far right, is Terence McNally, the author of the book of Kiss of the Spider Woman. And on my near right is John Kander, a former Kansas City boy, uh, the composer of Kiss. And on my uh, far left is Fred Ebb, who is the lyricist uh, of Spider Woman, and the Spider Woman herself, Cheetah Rivera, and uh, the producer of Spider Woman is uh, Garth Drabinsky. Terence, as a, as a playwright, you've been accustomed, obviously, to doing an awful lot of original work. With musicals, one of the interesting things to me is how often they are derived from a previous work of art in some other form. And uh, this seems to be a characteristic of almost all the musicals uh, that, that, that come to mind. In the case of uh, Kiss of the Spider Woman, can you tell us a little bit about its origin and the evolution from one form to another? Well, uh, it originally was a novel by Manuel Puig, um, and I'm not sure when it was published. Um, I think fairly shortly after that, the film was made, uh, which was very successful, and William Hurt won an Oscar for playing Molina. And it seemed two or three years after that, Fred Ebb had the idea for, for turning it into a stage musical. Mm -hmm. um, and then you were called in, or you had already, you presumably had, might have read the novel, or you saw the movie. I'd seen the movie, uh, and I had read the novel both, mm -hmm. in, the, in that order, actually. Yeah. And uh, when Fred called me, uh, my first reaction was, it was a great idea to turn it into a musical. Whereas sometimes you go, hmm, a musical out of Pygmalion, I don't really see that. <laughs> you know, This, as Fred said, we're thinking of making a musical out of Kiss Of. I was hoping he was going to finish the sentence with, yeah. of the Spider-Woman. Yeah. How we were going to do it, I don't think any of us knew at that point. Mm -hmm. But it seemed a very uh, right idea for the musical theater because of the size of the emotions in the, in the story. I think it's a universal and eternal story that Puig captured um, and I think it's going to be done as a ballet one day. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it became an opera. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it, it will respond to almost any dramatic form. Now, what was the moment, Fred, at which you decided? Uh, had you seen the movie? Is it, yes. And then was it a, immediately you thought, my God, it would be a great musical? No, I, I didn't. It sort of 
uh, germinated over a period of years. Uh, John and I were uh, anxious to uh, do another project, and we didn't have one. And uh, so one starts to think, you know, what might possibly interest you? And I don't know. It's like, you know, when people ask you, how'd you get the idea for that song? Uh, that's an impossible question to answer. Mm -hmm. I don't know at what moment. Uh, I thought, well, maybe this is right. I had no assurance that I was right, because as Terrence pointed out, I didn't know how to do it. I just know that the, the basic uh, theme of it, loyalty, passion, uh, compassion, uh, interested me enormously. And I thought I'd just try it on John. And I called him and I said, how'd you like to do Kiss of the Spider Woman? And I, he might have said anything. And he said, fine, I'd love it. Mm -hmm. And after that, we said, why don't we call Hal? Because Hal, you know, would hang up on you in a second if he thought it was a lousy idea. So we called Hal and said, we are interested in doing Kiss of the Spider Woman. Would you direct it? And he said, yes, I will. And literally, that is how it began. That's simply, and then we were desperate to get Terrence uh, to write the libretto, and we asked him, and then things just fell into place after that. Well, not easily, as you know, but... Seriously, uh, everybody was very affirma affirmative about it from the beginning, then. The creative staff, uh, yes. After, I'd like to amend that by saying that after we all said yes immediately, Nobody else that we talked to thought it was a good idea. <laughs> Everybody thought that is really the dumbest thing I ever heard. Mm -hmm. Even my mother, who <laughs> is so positive generally, she went out and rented the movie and said, "Oh, what a terrible idea for her. Yeah. So, that does make give you pause yeah. when your own mother has doubts. Has she, has she changed her mind? Really? Huh? Has she changed her mind? <laughs> now she goes every night. Yeah. Right, uh, how did, when, when did you come into the mix? It was two, two stages for me. Uh, the first time, uh, Hal uh, mentioned it to me in 1989, at the time we were in rehearsals for Phantom of the Opera in Toronto, which I produced. And I was involved at the same time in restoring uh, uh, an old atmospheric theater and also involved with a, a heinous buyback of my corporation, Cineplex Odeon Corporation, back in 89. So I said, look, I think it's actually got a lot of merit but you've got to count me out for the next year because I can't get my mind around uh, all of the other areas of uh, aggravation that I'm involved with today. Um, in any event, uh, after I left Cineplex Odeon, bought all the assets in the live entertainment division, and uh, went, uh, we were about three or four months into that era when uh, the opening of the production happened to purchase, and I went down to see it and uh, immediately uh, recognized, uh, I think, where the, the, the problems were going to be in the work. And uh, Hal said to me, are you, are you turned off? I said, absolutely not. Uh, I'm prepared to examine this again in a real serious way this time. Once you and, and Terrence and John and Fred have had the, the 12 months that you think you're going to need to uh, reorganize your thoughts and the direction of the work. And I was... I go all the way back to Kiss even earlier than these gentlemen because I was involved with the movie back in mm -hmm. 1985. I put up the last piece of the financing of that picture to make it happen back in 85. 
uh, and I purchased the uh, Canadian distribution rights for the film as, as a result of that, that investment. So I was always a very, very strong supporter of the work. Uh, it's just that there's an evolutionary process to these things, and, and uh, it wasn't ready for, for me to attach myself to it till about May of 1991. And um, Hal was now with me in Vancouver at the um, national touring production of Phantom this time, and we were in rehearsals with that, and he says, okay, the guys have done the work, we've worked very hard, I've got the new book, I've got the tape, uh, will you listen to it? And uh, I went up to my hotel room, and an hour and a half later, I called them up and said, you've, you've got this absolutely on track right now, let's go. And uh, it was, there was never a reservation in my mind from that moment on that ultimately we wouldn't be able to unlock and and create together a spectacular event for musical theater. Uh, it wasn't that easy from that moment, but we were clearly in my mind on the right track. Great. Cheetah, uh, picking up on this, and we also talk, God talks about the, and everybody has about the picture, uh, and you, of course, obviously uh, evolved and created uh, a role. Were you at all uh, influenced by the picture? Did you not see it? Did you see it? Uh, I did see it. I did see it, and it confused me. Mm -hmm. I, I really didn't follow it very easily. Um, I, uh, uh, when I was asked to, to do it, well, actually, when I saw it in purchase, Freddie sat right next to me, uh, which made it a little difficult for me to absolutely, totally get into it because <laughs> my best friend is sitting next to me, and I've got to, like, make him really feel good and I really wanted to enjoy it there were some things I got lost with even there the theater was enormous and 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 the project was I mean it was you, you wanted to feel as though you were in this confined area but I was fascinated by by the woman and it really never entered my mind that I was not asked to do it from the beginning I just I don't know why it never entered my mind but when I saw it on stage, I kind of, I then said, um, gee, <laughs> I could have done that, you know. Um, but then when I was finally asked, I was, I was absolutely thrilled. Uh, it's been a, an extremely exciting um, piece from, from the beginning of my being a part of it to, up to this point. A year and eight months, uh, it really feels as though it's been only five months. That's how rich it is every single night. I'm glad the fellas found me and asked me to do it because <laughs> it's been thrilling. It was a long talent search, you know. It was, mm. There was no profile historically. I right? see. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you pick, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say that yesterday when we were talking about uh, the development of plays and we had two very different feelings. Tony Kushner of uh, Angels in America has a play that has been under development almost like a musical for a long time. And, and uh, he, he has found that a very useful process. Uh, Edward Albee, on the other hand, uh, doesn't believe in that at all. And he thinks that it should only be a finished work on the part of the playwright and then take it or leave it. Well, of course, that's much easier to do with a play. And I, I don't think there's ever been a musical that didn't uh, have the anguish of, of development over a long period of time. How, how could it not be that way? But uh, more and more, it looks as if plays will also probably have to under, undergo the same treatment, and, and in, in part that's economic, in part so you, what, what, what are you in possession of, and, and what do you mean to be in possession of? So 
This isn't by any means, I suppose, a record breaker in your experience in terms of the, of the difficulty of delivery, or, or do you think it is? I think in John and, and my experience it is, yes. Mm -hmm. It's just uh, longevity. I mean, how long, you, how long are you going to stick with it mm -hmm. yeah. uh, before you think, you know, maybe you've come a cropper with it? Mm -hmm. And the experience in, uh, in purchase was so uh, difficult. Well, describe that a little bit, because a lot of people don't know anything about that. Well, so, so much the better. <laughs> uh, we uh, opened a, a musical that was not a very good musical, and uh, I guess that's succinct anyway. Uh, I think we made a great many mistakes in, in all areas that we weren't quite together on um, the style of the piece. Uh, which I must say Hal eventually found. It, it was not a style that we were uh, working with in, in purchase. We were conventional and uh, not very good. Uh, thankfully, there were um, goths in the audience. Maybe they didn't have an, as much money, but uh, they were, there were people who saw uh, through it all, and saw a merit in, and, and I, we're very grateful that uh, a man like Garth was there because I think otherwise, do you agree? It would have probably yes. died. I think it's, it's unique here is that for years I've always thought well, it was one of the reasons the mortality rate on Broadway is so high is that the road has died, and I've had plays on the road where we made enormous changes and the show has come to New York and been successful. Now the road is pretty much extinct. If this show had been in Boston, we could not have done the work on it. We did because the physical production in the musical kind of dictates what the show looks like and the show is so different what we're doing now than we've yes. done in Purchase. We couldn't have turned it into that show with that physical production. We were stuck with a very conventional looking show and moving show with wagons and it, it, the whole life of it was so different. Mm -hmm. So actually, we were lucky that, to, that we had a second chance totally, even though it was a year off the boards. We couldn't have done this work in Boston, is what I'm saying. We really had to go back to the drawing board. And Garth's loyalty to the project was yeah. astonishing, considering the fact that it was so poorly received by the press, who should not have been, really have been received by the press yeah. at all. I do want to interject something here. Uh, this was not an out-of-town run. This, uh, this was an organization called New Musicals, which was set up to do exactly what it did. Uh, so I don't think uh, we should be talking about it as if that was the production which was intended to then happen. Uh, we were given an extraordinary privilege, I think, in, in purchase, in that we could run for eight weeks with a fully staged piece, look at it, change it night after night, and then close down. That was always the idea. And uh, go back to the drawing board and take what we learned from it. And I submit that we would never have had the show have arrived at the show that we have now had we not had the great, great good fortune of going to purchase and uh, being able to make all those mistakes. So it wasn't a pressure of <coughs> having done it too soon or anything. It Absolutely. really was intended no, to be. Just no. We thought it would work one way and we found right. it didn't. I want to go back to when was purchase? Well, let's give us a time. Big I one. was much younger. <laughs> <laughs> what year was purchase? Uh, June 90. of 1990. When? June of 1990. Okay. And we're, can you give us a stop-by-stop stop along the way from purchase to here? 
What happened? Well, what well, happened after Digest purchase? version would be when God <coughs> became involved, and we completely rewrote the piece. We then reopened in Toronto, where we played how many weeks? We opened in Toronto in June 1992. So, so I, I committed between from from purchase to the time that I committed was almost a year, mm -hmm. and then it took another year from the time I committed to open Toronto for what I would term a an expanded regional production of the work, okay, if I can use that phraseology. And that took us through to the summer of 1992, the end of August. What happened was after we opened Toronto, we opened to uh, virtually uh, unanimous acclaim within the Toronto community, um, we still saw that there were significant defects in the work that, that had to be repaired. And uh, uh, it was one of these bizarre summers when usually Hal spends his time in Europe or wherever, so he ran off in one direction. Uh, Fred had to have some unfortunate surgery that summer, which, which put him into a, a little bit of an indisposed situation. And, and, and so it was trying to coordinate everybody over the course of that three months to focus to get the additional work done on the piece before we went so to we London. The clo we closed at the end of August. Before we closed in Toronto, however, we went back into rehearsal mm -hmm. for three or four weeks on the work that was done over the summer so that we were largely in position to take what we thought was now pretty close to the finished work to London in October of 1992. And we opened in the Shaftesbury Theatre in London, October 1992. Uh, again, got a, a great deal of acclaim, won the London Evening Standard Award for Best Musical. And that set the motion into motion the the move to Broadway for the spring of 1993 at the Broadhurst Theatre. So when you opened in London, it was pretty much a full production. It was it was like the second stop on the tour. Yeah, it was it was I think fully flat. I think it was 97 percent of what was New York. Let's oh, say. I, I thought it was all at that point. I mean, we opened with brand new numbers. I was the problem. Wasn't I mostly? I mean, there was some, there was the some additional. Was, yeah, there was some additional work on, 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 on a little bit of I think tweaking of choreography. And by the time we got to New York, a little bit more of the scenic, <laughs> more than tweaking. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> much more than tweaking. Scenic design work that Jerome was still working on on some of the slides and so forth, and, and you know the projectional moves, and and then there may have been a couple of you know book moments and dialogue and so forth that, that we added to New York and, and made some changes. But essentially, what finally opened in London was pretty close to the. Well, uh, the financial situation between Toronto and London. How how is, did you balance that? Well, it was each step of the way cost uh, a chunk of money. Approximately, the I came to Broadway with a total cost of about seven and a half million dollars to to do one by the time I opened Broadway, but it went two and a half million or so to open Toronto another two and a half million to open London and another two and a half million to finally get it to Broadway and uh, in in conjunction with what Brendan has to say I think there's no question that today that is got that has to be the process <coughs> I think the musicals have to go through in order if, if anybody's responsible to the work responsible creatively and responsible in terms of a marketing <coughs> sense you just can't with all of the pressure that there is in terms of creating these 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 new works, hopefully for generations, and the 
tremendous capital commitment to them. You need to have the time to stand back and examine and then go back in, do the additional surgery, stand back, take a look at it again, and that's the process. We're told, though, that that's, no one can afford that anymore. That, that is well, I think it's ultimately cheaper than spending $8.5 million on a one-time shot in New York, which happens quite regularly. That the, I see too many times when producers are, are creating the work, you know, on a, in a Broadway situation with five weeks of previews and staggering pressures and, and not having the luxury of really having a chance to re-examine what they have. So in how long does it take to recoup? Uh, or do you, do you try to calculate that and it has to be years? No, it, in this instance here, because of the size of the theater that we're playing in, it will, it will take uh, about a year and a half uh, or a little over a year to handle recoupment of the New York investment. But then you've created a work that you're exploiting all over the world mm -hmm. so that we have a production of Kiss that's opening in Vienna next month. Mm -hmm. And that's going to spin off tremendous royalties for the show on an ongoing basis. And, and hopefully there'll be productions in South America and in the Far East and so on, and there'll be a touring production in the United States. So you have to look at the global exploitation of a new work as opposed to just its New York run in terms of justifying these things. has become global like everything else. Surely. In a way which was simply not true 10, 15 years ago. It couldn't be. Well, what, what is the weekly nut in New York? How much does it cost a week? Uh, well, we're breaking even with a gross of about $325,000 a week. Now, obviously, the show's been selling at capacity, so it's, uh, uh, we're in that luxurious position of recouping our investment at a reasonable clip right now. But uh, it wasn't that case in London. It wasn't that case in Toronto. Uh, it, needed, it needed the acclaim of New York. It needed the attention of the Tony Awards to understand, make the, the audiences of the world understand that this was an important work and that it should be viewed as, as a, a breakthrough, I think, in musical theater and pushing the envelope of musical theater in, in new directions and, and that people should not be missing this opportunity. This is practically a recordy company of Hal Princes here, with the group that's represented here in the creative end of it. What, what about you? Did you build your production staff from New York or from Toronto? starting with your casting and, and, and uh, general manager all the way down. Is that a, a New York or a Toronto-based? <laughs> the casting or? largely was uh, American casting, uh, mm -hmm. focused around Cheetah from the very beginning. Uh, when I finally got involved and everybody said, we want to go with Cheetah Rivera in the lead, and, and I was reverential to that idea because I thought it was an exquisite idea. It was the right idea for so many reasons, and it's proven to be the case. Uh, the only Canadian casting of consequence happened, ironically, in the case of Brent Carver in the first instance. <laughs> and, and that was an unusual story, and maybe John, you know, you uh, or Terrence may want to tell that story. Why don't you? Yeah. Well, uh, we were, we did a uh, sort of a reading workshop uh, in New York with with Richard Thomas playing playing the lead and he was quite wonderful I must say <clears throat> and then we were in Toronto as I recall and we were casting there and looking to see what Canadian actors we could uh, we could fit into this and Brent came in and auditioned 
and simply blew us away. It was, he was just not like any actor I think I've ever seen in my life. And he sang beautifully as well. And we decided then to make him a kind of alternate to Richard in the cast. He was to do a couple of performances a week, I think that was it. And uh, Richard Thomas was to do the rest. Then uh, Richard had some very serious personal problems back in California. And uh, to his great sadness, he had to drop out of the production, and Brent took over the role. And the rest, as they say, is history. Isn't that unusual to have in the star at the very beginning, the alternate there, as you did with Thomas and, and, and Carver? But, yeah, it certainly is unusual, but so was Brent Carver. Yes. Terrence, <laughs> I'd like to pick up a little bit on, we talked about the differences between, let's say, the beginnings in Purchase and, and then uh, picking it up again. I think it would be useful because so many people um, have seen and will see because uh, of the Spider-Woman. What were some of the specifics? I mean, we talked about finding the style. How, were, how was the script changed from or the book and, and even the songs, the whole process? What work didn't work and a little bit, where you went and why you made those changes. I'll, I'll try to answer, because and sometimes I even forget what's... Because mm -hmm. this show was a long gestation. Uh, the changes were enormous. I, I remember reading, before we opened in New York, uh, a publication that has sort of theater gossip and things. They said, how new are the new musicals? And they said, Spider-Woman, only... Only 80% of the dialogue is new, and there's only eight new songs. And you go, do they know what? 80% is a lot. Eight songs in the show are a lot. So I thought Nitwit wrote that article uh, to even say that. So enormous changes, we all felt. I would say the most obvious one, we thought, the three of us, and I can't just speak, because John and Fred and I worked so closely together, uh, I, I think I can have to use we only, and if I... If you disagree with anything, either of you, or I'm not remembering properly, jump in. I think the biggest change was we thought we were going to find an equivalent to parallel the story of Molina and Valentin, their relationship in the cell and the love and betrayal uh, with a long, long movie that Molina was telling, rather like Scheherazade. So that movie that he was telling began in scene one and ended in their last scene together. Uh, and this was kind of a B-movie, a little bit like Casablanca. It was kind of a film noir, um, but it was a musical. What it forced us to do, of course, was where, was, where did I leave off yesterday? Oh, that's right, Aurora was doing this or that. Uh, and it just didn't work. And the audience, because it was like you had to keep going back and doing the exposition. It, it put slowed, a terrific strain on it. Slowed the show they down. They had to follow two and they separate had, stories, the story of the of the movie and the play Story of the which, cell yes and it only allowed john and fred to write musically in one style because they were telling the story of singing in the rain say so when we came up with the idea and it wasn't mine that he remembered scenes from aurora's that he was told him every film aurora had ever made that gave us such a freedom and flexibility and i think that's the simplest way to explain the change. It was always the two men in the cell. It always ended in death, etc. Um, we had to we had to see it on the stage, though, to know to that. Know that. And that's why, again, the value of the of the purchase experience. We thought we were very smart, 
<laughs> having come up with the device of the, the parallels of the warden was the villain <clears throat> in the movie you know valentine was the hero of the movie there's lots of double casting melina was the only one who was not really in the movie and uh, well actually i'd gone to bat for this idea of doing it in fragments and it came from the art, the artist source which was john simon <clears throat> of that's an odd of a blessed name <laughs> he uh <laughs> who is not a fan of, of the show, I don't believe. But he saw it in purchase, and his remarks were repeated to me. Was that if Molina, in fact, were telling Valentin one uh, movie, quote, what the hell was taking him so long? <laughs> you could tell the story of a movie in one night. This was two and a half hours and considerable time change. I mean... I don't know uh, precisely what the time span of, of the show is, but it's, it's months that they've been together and they've, this relationship has grown. Why is it, is it not uh, so di why is it so difficult to Is he parceling it out? And if he is, isn't that irritating? Why would that be something Valentine would come to, to but life. But that's what he does in the book. Right. Yeah, the right, and the film, but it worked. But So I don't, I don't agree with Simon. That's what was wrong. I think it was cumbersome. And what well, it did, of the, the character it negated was Aurora because she only became a character in one movie. Now she's all women in all kinds of movies. So it made Cheetah's role so much more interesting for her to play mm -hmm. because she wasn't stuck in one silly movie. Mm -hmm. She's now in many movies. And... Uh, she becomes a manifestation of uh, every fantasy of Molina's ever had. So, just this simple idea, then you realize, oh, why the part of Aurora? But it's a major change. A major yeah. change. It sounds very simple, but that's why 80% of the book was rewritten and all these new songs, which... Uh, there was another concept that we had which we thought was equally sophisticated and which was just as stupid. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and that was the... Uh, we decided that we would be very artful and that the two men in the cell could never sing to each other. They could only express themselves musically uh, when they were in reverie or in fantasy, but they could never express themselves musically to each other. And that was really dumb. Why did we... I, don't know why. <laughs> I have no idea why we did that. We, we, we patted ourselves on the back a lot, though, for having come up with that. Yeah. No, no, well, that is. It sounds like an attractive idea to me, too. <laughs> I sound just as dumb as anybody. Now, when things last a long time, they have a look year after year after year. All of you have your own lives. Everything is going on. In the case of Terrence, for example, uh, you must have been at work in a couple of other of your plays. because mm -hmm. So uh, what is the trick of going back and forth between these things? What plays were you working on while you were also working on Kiss? I, I guess a perfect Ganesh and lips together, teeth apart. Mm -hmm. Musicals, are, you know, you work very intensely, and then, then there's a period of respite, and uh, it was, it was ne never a problem there. Mm -hmm. I think John and Fred have been developing some other projects, too. Uh, it's, uh, it's, you know, when you get everyone together, you really roll up your sleeves and work very hard. Mm -hmm. uh, so th I don't think that's... It, it's not like you... It, it, there were very intense periods when we worked on I think that's how... It's like when we rehearsed this show. I mean, we were in Toronto every day at rehearsal, and, and 
did all our work up until we had to stop, and then we're looking at the show calmly over the summer. And that's a luxury to open a show in, when do we open in May or June, and trying to go back and see it in July, and just let your mind go blank for a month and say, that number's not working because, or we should replace this, or this scene could be redone. Whereas when you're working day to day, you sometimes get a little desperate. I think that's probably what Edward Albee was talking about when he said he doesn't believe in workshops that you can lose a show with too much input mm -hmm. and people saying, do this, do that. And I think a lot of playwrights get terrified of losing their plays through all these yeah. developmental productions. But I think we always had a very clear vision of what we wanted this show to be, the, the three so writers and Did and you how. see all of this and feel all of this? As oh, goodness. When I looked at the script and I saw fragment number one, when Freddie just said fragment, I, chills went down my spine. Because <laughs> it, it, I said, I'm now into fragment number five. I am nothing but a fragment here. <laughs> I said, how do I make this, these fragments into something whole? It was pretty scary. The fragments were, of course, the spider woman. So she had to, Aurora was actually much easier. It was a fascinating process to be there and not there, to be this man. Uh, to be his imagination. I still find it to this day. Uh, that's what keeps me so uh, excited about the show every night. Because um, uh, just a look from him changes my entire uh, persona, you know. Um, the hardest part, as I said, was the Spider Woman. What is she? Uh, Carol Lawrence, who is 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 uh, doing uh, uh, taking uh, my part when I take my holiday, wanted to know about the Spider Woman. How? What is she? Well, she became. Uh, she of course is death, but she also is this character that Aurora played in a movie. She. I had to decide at the end of the show when I was sitting watching optimistic endings his after his death his his movie and we all are a part of his movie i had to decide what was i when i walked into his movie was i the spider woman or was i aurora and i just decided terence that i was both that through the entire I play <laughs> i tell you i'm glad you didn't ask me <laughs> But I was both. I walked in because I really want to enjoy his movie. Mm -hmm. And I walked in as Aurora, and through the entire play, she is, the Spider Woman is, is so clever that she is both at the same time. She is death in his mind at a very young age whenever she appears to him. She is really death, but she is death through Aurora. Am I confusing you? A few minutes ago, you said so engagingly in respect to the London production that you said you were the problem. Yes, Now, what do I, you I mean was. by that? The problem that was... That sounds charming to me to say such a thing. <laughs> what does it mean? Well, I, I hadn't really... Um, the dancing had not been settled properly. It was very complicated to do. Um, uh, the 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 a wonderful revelation for me was uh, Rob Marshall said I would like to see I actually said I'd like to do a number as a, a man in one of his movies and he said yes I see you as Dietrich I see you in the white suit well as the play was running 
Molina wears this tux, white tuxedo at the end of the show. It had been that de designed by Florence Klotz uh, from the very beginning. So he said, I think you should look like this. And he brought out this white suit, that uh, this uh, picture of Dietrich. And I said, perfect. And suddenly, I, then I went, oh, no, it's not perfect because I, he wears a white suit at the end, so I, I can't. And then it clicked in. Of course, it parallels. It's exactly the same. It's exactly as it should be. That's how things sort of fell together with this play. Anyhow, it was absolute, things were absolutely right at the right time. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, now I'm very comfortable. Now I know exactly who I am. But it took me a very long time. It took me until Rob Marshall came in and put Molina in all of my numbers so that everything that I did came from him. So everywhere I looked, I saw him. Uh, I could actually play off of him as he plays off of me. So it becomes a very spiritual thing. It becomes a very full, full uh, role for me. I think she does. Uh said it improperly really she was never the problem it was our problem as writers to make that part uh, a more interesting and be worthy of her and worthy I mean it, it's the title of your show and uh, where is she uh, she was rather lost I think in the first version that Cheetah was given a play mm -hmm. and then we I think worked hardest on, on buttressing that part, making it clearer. Uh, Terence added a very significant speech, which was extremely helpful to the audience, which says, in essence, that uh, the Spider-Woman is a part that Aurora once played in a movie. Well, then you kind of sigh, oh, I get it. You know, I mean, there were, there were times I think they didn't get it. Mm -hmm. And we all felt they hadn't gotten it up until that point. And then we added just things for her to do. Well, the Russian movie was two brilliant. New song, two new songs. And two new songs. Yes. So, so we gave her an opportunity to really how be... How much did all of that add to the production of it? To the production costs? To the production a lot. structure? A lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, 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 well, talk about that a little bit? No, it, it was... It, every time one looks at bringing in a new uh, musical segment to a, to a piece... Then you're getting into not only uh, reorchestrations and copying costs and new costuming, but then it's all the rehearsal time and there's scenic changes that go along with it. There may even be additional casting complications with it and so forth. And, and uh, that's what caused the, the budget to some extent to, to escalate between uh, Toronto and, and, uh, and London. I mean, I would say that even in the case of those three or four weeks of additional rehearsal time that we spent in Toronto before we left for London, we spent another four or five hundred thousand dollars on the show to get it to that position. Uh, but it's either a question as... At what as time was it? You said until the rehearsal time. <coughs> what period are you talking about? In the last four weeks of the 12-week run that we had in Toronto when we began to introduce the new material, there was a commitment of, of another uh, close to a half a million dollars ultimately in, in costs between time downtime that we had to have for the show in terms of the performances, the, you know, the additional rehearsal uh, hours during the week because by that time you're not allowed 
to rehearse more than four hours a week in Canada without going into overtime expenses for the, for the cast. That a little bit, Felicity. Well, under, under equity laws, uh, rules, labor agreements, um, once a show opens and plays for uh, uh, a couple of weeks after uh, the opening night, you then go into a performance mode and you're allowed four hours of rehearsals with the cast a week over and above the conventional 32 hours, eight performances times approximately four hours that the cast would be on call to do the show. Uh, Any time that you go beyond that four-hour commitment, you're into overtime and you're paying substantial amounts of money. Again, when you're dealing with the crew costs, uh, there's a certain number of hours a week that you call the crew for. And if you're there and you need the crew to do rehearsals on stage, then you're going to overtime. Overtime means anywhere from time and a half to double time. And that can escalate you know, the budget considerably. If you have to call an orchestra, again, you're escalating the budget. And it's just a question of, of if you're committed to the work as the producer, and you're committed behind the creative constituency, and this is about as glorious a creative constituency as you ever can be blessed with, I think, in musical theater. And I include Mr. Prince, who has now joined us. We have Hal Prince there. Uh, Gracefully done. You're truly blessed. And having having said that, uh, and knowing that, and feeling really that we were unlocking something quite extraordinary here, the decision was to keep going. And and if I felt that, you know, that it was going to be ruinous, or I was depressed about the results that were being created, then I would have thrown out my hands and said, no, this just can't go on. But I, I, I really never had that concern. The concern I had was whether or not we could ignite audiences into getting excited about this work from a marketing point of view. Once we had unlocked all the creative aspects, that was a whole other problem to the show, of course. Did you ever have any concerns, Mr. Prince? I don't think about those things. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I was concerned that we got the show, so we liked it, really. Uh-huh. And, and actually, uh, since we're selling out, I think I can say that it never occurred to me we'd sell out. I mean, I really thought it was just something that we had to do and that we loved, and, and happily it was celebrated. But I, I didn't know that audiences would flock to see it, not for one minute. And I'm thrilled they, they do. And, and uh, I hope it encourages other people to take chances. Well, that's, that's, I thought that all of theater was taking chances. Not anymore. No. Well, that's one of the problems. I that agree is the with problem. You. But, yeah, but that's changing the subject, I'm afraid. But, we had, we had, uh, instead of to, to bring you up, Hal, a little bit. <laughs> Why don't you run over the last hour? Yeah, so we can, we can re- rerun it for you guys. Uh, well, we have been speaking about a three-letter person. I was wondering if it was G-O-D. No, it was H-A-L. Uh, never once was your last name needed. <laughs> That's right. Well, the, there is, the, we, we, we talked about the purchase experience and then the, the value of that and the fact that it gave you the time to re-examine and come back from that and, and, and redo. Um, and um, Fred was talking about Simon Says. You were playing Simon Says a little bit here. Uh, I do know that some of the uh, the things that that seem to be, uh, and I I wonder if it affected you badly or or not or it didn't affect. But there was a lot of controversy. I remember uh, at the time at purchase where a lot of press came there that we felt shouldn't have come there because it gave a lot of 
attention. I mean, it, I would think that it, it might have added to, to some confusion. You talk, Terrence was talking about a lot of people nattering at you about the script and giving you advice and all of that. I imagine that could oh, have... Oh, sure. We, we simply were not allowed to evolve, exactly, which was the yeah. whole, whole thing. Now, the irony is we did evolve. Yeah. It just took three and a half years or something. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, certain projects require more time. And certainly when, you, when you're flying a bit blind, I mean, we've all had experience in the theater, but this particular experience was, a lot of it was, was flying blind, trying to in, reinvent something for ourselves. And so uh, it took a long time. But the idea of, of SUNY Purchase was to evolve over a, uh, a long period of time without any interference from uh, uh, critical appraisal. And that we weren't allowed to do. So we stopped for a year and started again, worked again on the material, and, and thanks to Garth and live entertainment, we were able to, to, to continue a process which we planned in the first place. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody here had any conviction, certain, certain con feeling that, that what we were doing originally was going to work right out, not for any not for a minute. I think we all knew it. There were pitfalls, and we were probably falling in them, but we had to find out. And the process that he made available to us was also interesting, because that was also an evolving, nurturing thing. We were able to work on it, open in Canada, go away for a while, leaving Cheetah there to think, are they ever coming back, and what are they going to do? But in fact, we needed the time, and and proved it, and then came back, and... and uh, Fred and John wrote arguably my favorite number in the whole show, which is the one you've been talking about in the white tie yeah, and tails. It, it's funny, you know, every night there, there is another revelation almost. Uh, at the end, remember I used to be so upset at the end of Gimme Love, which is the end of the first act. It's a number that appears to be unfinished. It does not finish with a bam, a dot, you know. And I was always unhappy. Yes, God. <laughs> I was always unhappy because I wanted to finish, da-da, and the audience would know it's finished, and you would get your hand, and it would be thunderous, it would be wonderful. And I, you know, you even told me one time, Cheetah, you've moved into the light. <laughs> I've moved the cage into this light. <laughs> and I thought, he's got me in the dark, the number doesn't end, the audience doesn't know what's going, what's happening. And it's absolutely on the nose every night now as, I, as we accept this wonderful applause. I, I say, well, yes, they know what they're doing. So you just shut up and do it. What he talked about when he said that Harold found what was wrong. He found what was needed to be done. As a director, how do you find and what do you bring to finding? Particularly in this style. I think we're talking about this. Well, style it was all, I mean, really, talk about This is the ultimate collaboration this show. Uh, so, uh, you know, in various combinations and all together, we just kept working. But there's more hunt and peck, hit and miss going on, going on to create a show like this than any show I've ever worked on. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean, you do something, you say, I don't know whether it's going to work. And then, you, uh, and then you see it and it doesn't, or it does. And then you move on from there. It's as if you were making the rules. Uh, as you go along. 
That is not always the case. I mean, you know, I, I, when, uh, this is parenthetical and, and maybe even seeming irrelevant, but when I go to work in London, because they're not used to this process, uh, I, the only rule I ever have is that the show that previews the first night is going to be the show because we'll never be able to fix it afterwards. Mm -hmm. And that's my experience. So that that's the show because they just don't have that experience uh, and uh, heretofore. So, so, uh, but this was not that. This was, well, look, we must all rely on each other and we must just keep trying and, and uh, until we jimmy it into place. But haven't we always done that when we went to Philadelphia and we went that's to what, Boston? That's what American we... musical create, creation has always been. Yes. The, the thing about Toronto that happened for us is I felt in Toronto that I was back in Boston, which is the highest mm -hmm. praise yes. I can mm -hmm. yes. offer. Yes. And I just felt that again, doing another show there. So, but that is not available to us uh, now, here, in Boston, as it were. Well, we were talking about that before. It really has to be. It, somewhere mm -hmm. you have to have that privilege. Something, something else that hasn't been mentioned yet, it's, and I think it's very important in terms of unlocking this show, and that was the dramatic change to the scenic design of the show. Uh, from where purchase was to what happened in Toronto, and and I think Hal should speak about that because it, the engagement of Jerome 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 Serlin to do the work that he did that complements Hal's incredible cinematic vision of how he directs musical theater. A B from an economic standpoint, this was a situation where for the first time uh, the musical, as I said, came to Broadway with a seven and a half million dollar price tag you wouldn't necessarily come to that conclusion by seeing what's in the theater because it isn't all opulent costumes it isn't all lavish sets but what it is you know it, and so the money that was spent in this show largely went into the the creative process and the rehearsal process and and, and, all, the, the and all of that on the way to and, New York yeah and all of know? that all of that <laughs> But the the magic, though the scenic design, is is a fascinating it's aspect. Extraordinary design, absolutely. It's abstract. Yeah, it's it wasn't static. abstract. It wasn't abstract. It was it was it was uh, beautifully designed for another show. But as as uh, I think Fred was pointing out, it's a it was a completely different show. Uh, it was a much more conventional uh, musical comedy treatment of the subject, and not one that I feel particularly comfortable with. It's not the kind of musical theater that I do as well as a whole lot of other guys who are still doing it and were doing it. And, and what we did was uh, we changed the production, certainly, enor enormously, the whole concept, that awful word of the show, and became something that I do feel much more comfortable with, which is to say uh, abstraction, uh, uh, surrealism, oh, all that stuff, mm -hmm. and it, it it was much more fun to work on. What was it that you saw at the very beginning that made you want to do it? Uh, they uh, they approached me with an idea. I thought it was a terrific idea. I actually didn't like the movie. I'd seen the film, and I said, you know, I didn't like the film very much. Uh, but then I read the book. And I thought, gee, that's a musical. I, I, I've reached a point, and I think we all have in our lives, where you say, well, it seems, it seems musical, but it seems impossible. And then people say, you're doing Kiss for the Spot. Hey, what? And you think, that's good. That's good. <laughs> but there's one thing I always have felt. I've always felt that there was an enormous advantage if you're working on something that people said, you're working on that, 
because at least they don't have a preconception mm -hmm. of what you're going to give them. Mm -hmm. And one of the worst mm -hmm. things that happens, at, particularly in the musical theater, is if the audience is wildly uh, excited about some idea, oh boy, what an idea, that can't miss. Mm -hmm. I think we've all been in, involved with musicals that can't miss, mm -hmm. and boy did they miss. Mm -hmm. And it's because audiences have a very strong preconception, and you don't do the show they were looking for. Mm -hmm. You can't. You're you, and they're they, and yeah, that's the problem. Very interesting. Uh, everybody had uh, their own desperate feelings about the film. So when we did Seventh Heaven, they were totally disappointed. They expected exactly what they had gotten in the film, and they and they felt they didn't get it. So we were not successful, even though I thought, I thought it was a terrific show. Before you got here, how we decided we were the only four people in the world who thought this was a good idea, <laughs> <laughs> because everyone else we told was yeah, like Spider Woman, absolutely we terrible. Prevented the press from coming to purchase. I'd like to try. I'd like to address that. Yeah, I was at this meeting. Uh, Seventeen of us. Rep the, the first place, there's a little background with new musicals. There were to be four projects, all of which were going to have the benefit of an eight weeks production and then be able to go back to the drawing board and and take what they had learned and rewrite. Uh, we were the first up at bat. And then the New York Times, all the, everybody else, I think, except the New York Times, had said they would not come, if I'm correct about that. Uh, and suddenly we got word that the Times was going to send uh, Mr. Rich to review us. And the whole point of going to purchase was to be able to work without any critics around so you could make a fool of yourself in the privacy of your own theater. Seventeen of us representing all the projects that were up at bat and and some friendly outsiders including the president of the Dramatist Guild went down to the New York Times and for two hours we sat and tried to explain to them what they would be doing by sending a, a reviewer. And all we got were kind of kind of blessings about how you know we really do love the theater. And uh, and after our meeting, uh, they decided to send Mr. Rich anyway. And that opened the door for everybody to come. And uh, not only did it uh, hurt us in terms of our project, though ultimately it didn't hurt us, uh, it destroyed the whole program. The other three projects never got the opportunity to have the experience that we had, and new musicals ceased to exist. You'd be, I think you might be interested to know what the other two that were going to follow us that season were. Mm -hmm. Secret Garden. Secret Garden, My which could have benefited favorite. enormously mm -hmm. by the eight-week nurturing process, and My Favorite, My favorite year. year. So they were all mm -hmm. uh, worthy projects that actually uh, stumbled. Uh, but, but why did they have to abandon the other two projects? Oh, because the whole thing was predicated on there not being critics, on your being able to do. And they kept saying, but you're spending so much money on scenery and costumes, so why, why shouldn't we come and review? Well, then, I've always no, felt no that... Answer. I've always yeah. felt... It's no answer at all. I've always felt that, that uh, workshops uh, are, are, are not... For me, at least, they're not good... Uh, in, because you can't have scenery, proper scenery, costumes, and lighting, and I think musicals owe a great deal to production values, and I don't think all of us can look at something, the real bare bones, and know what we're looking at. I'm going to have you hold the bare bones okay. <laughs> for just one minute. We're going to stretch. Everybody stand up, take a deep breath, and come right back again, and we'll continue this.
We're continuing the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre. This discussion today is on the production, the production of The Spider Woman, how it took, where it went, and how it got to Broadway. And as we stopped in, uh, just a few minutes ago, we were talking to Harold Prince, the director of Kiss of the Spider Woman, and talked about the importance of the musical theatre having time, that it is not like any other kind of theatre. You have to see it with its, everything that goes into it. And that can't take place in just a workshop, said Mr. Prince. Do you want to continue that? Well, I, I, yeah, sure. I, I, I was just saying that for me, a workshop doesn't provide enough uh, support for the imagination. In other words, uh, uh, given that workshops are used for a number of things, they're used for the authors and the director to know what the next work is they have to do. They're very often used to raise money or uh, entice a producer or whatever. And as such, they're, they're, they, they, there are too many things left out, too many elements. Scenery, costumes, orchestrations, full orchestra, all that stuff, which is vital to a musical. Uh, now, there are musicals that are very minimalist. I, uh, that's fine. But very often, a musical is an elaborate and, and spectacular occasion, and it should be allowed to be that. And you can't erase certain components and then judge uh, what the musical's going to be and how it's going to work. Uh, so I don't, I don't particularly uh, cotton to, uh, to workshops. The SUNY Purchase Project was to provide scenery, costumes, an orchestra, and all those other components so you could then see what was wrong with the material in a, in a, in a proper setting. Um, uh, it, it doesn't exist because of what we were describing before. But I'm happy to say there are, because of its much publicized demise, and clearly because of the ultimate success of Kiss of the Spider-Woman, if Kiss of the Spider-Woman hadn't been a success, we wouldn't be talking about uh, any of these uh, projects that are now cropping up to take the place of what was happening in SUNY. But there are such programs, and one of them, happily, uh, is, uh, has been uh, instituted by Garth Drabinsky and the Toronto Group. Uh, in fact, Marty Bell, who did, who, who masterminded SUNY Purchase, is now joined Live Entertainment, Garth's organization, to create musicals, find them, uh, uh, put seed money into the writing of them and development of them, and then ultimately give them productions. So, uh, you know, Canada's not very far away. I wish it were happening on our own soil as well, but Canada's only 55 minutes away. And uh, uh, at this moment, in my estimation, light years ahead of uh, home base. Well, I, I won't agree with that altogether, but there's a, a, some merit in what you have to say. But can you, can you continue doing this with being used as a workshop in well, Canada, in a sense, with large musical comedies, such as The, the Scope and, and, and uh, uh, Kiss of a well, Spider. it's not a question of being used. It's a question of uh, my business, my industry, is musical theater today. And if I'm going, I've, there's three ways that I can perpetuate our company in musical theater. One is I can s scan the world uh, in terms of what is currently out there in London or New York, and on an ex post facto basis, acquire the rights to a successful show and remount it in Toronto and probably make a lot of money doing it. But 
the other two areas take a lot more intensive creative effort and 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 a commitment by our company financially one of them is in the area of recreations of 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 works from the canon of musical theater like we've just done with showboat in toronto to uh, great success and the third is the area that kiss of the spider woman falls in which is the creation of new musicals well in order to uh... given the fact that it is a three-year or more process in to create a musical uh... and we don't know what is going to ultimately distill into a successful vehicle we really have this obligation now to ferret out from the world the universe of of talent and material out there today uh... works that we can then this examine on a continuing basis during their evolution and the way to do that is to finance readings of the works and finance where appropriate workshop productions so we're not being used because no one is going to get in the front door unless i have a lock hopefully on the work by the time we take a look at it so that if i get excited about it i know that i'm going to have the right to be able to say here's some more money now let's take it to the next step and then let's use our production expertise to bring everybody to the occasion. Will you have a production company in New York as well? Well, it's our company is a, a global corporation, if you will. We're the first public company in live theater today. We've raised over $50 million through the public markets this year alone. Do you uh, have a subscription? A subscription season? Mm -hmm. No, but we own our own theaters, and we don't intend to produce for... Uh, on a subscription basis when we finally commit to something we commit to it because we can run the productions on an open-ended basis out of Toronto initially uh, Canada uh, on a secondary exploitation and then transfer the works or mount second productions of the works in New York and London or anywhere else in the world we choose to do so how do you been produced more about marketing which is a totally different aspect yeah. of, of the uh, the production of a musical and what do you mean by marketing and you can have successful marketing and unsuccessful but tell us a little bit about that well, I, the problem and I've had lots of conversations with Hal about this because uh, um, I think historically some of the problems in 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 the theater industry have have been that the producers who have been involved with these shows really don't understand the business from its entirety and to suggest that a show your obligation in terms of mounting a show is over the moment the show opens even with unanimous acclaim is folly because that's when the, the work really begins and you're not going to be successful the first year we've already established you need to recoup your investment it's only the second year and onward that you're really finally starting to make a, a decent return to get to that second year is that you have to get the message out to the audiences that there is an event happening in New York or in Toronto or London and that you're going to be the worse for not going to that event. Yeah. Now obviously you know you can rely on word of mouth to some extent but the other aspect is you have to titillate the audiences out there with a, a varied uh, and intelligent set of messages and, and you don't know what's going to spark the audiences whether it's going to be through television radio or newspaper and I certainly you know take the position that even if we have a newspaper campaign we're not going to sit with one campaign and play the same campaign day after day after day in the newspapers and so you know, we work very hard Sorry. I want to get back to the nitty-gritty of this of producing and because uh, Howard you you've been both producer and director well I'm not going to answer your question because I'm going to answer what you said before because right. I thought it was a bit of a put-down <laughs> and I want to defend what I was saying I don't perceive around here 
in the city that I've lived and worked in for 40 years, and in an industry, because that's the word that's given to it, that I love uh, passionately, uh, I don't perceive uh, the willingness and to take chances, the real love of what's up on the stage, the real need to create musical theater in a context with the history of musical theater. In other words, to advance, to think of it as an art form. There's somebody over there who's been talking about business, and I appreciate it. I want him to, because I don't want to. I don't want to worry about what a show costs. I am, I am not the world's most profligate spender. I just want for a show what it deserves artistically. But I'm interested in, in God help me, making art and hoping that the art will often enough pay back its investment so that it's encouraged to continue. Uh, that process does not exist in New York at the moment. There are theaters out there, yes, regional theaters, trying to create musicals. They've had, since the National Endowment, that's sort of the date that I, I would put at the beginning of that, they've had a whole long period of time to do that and they haven't created a hell of a lot numerically in that period. Of course there are exceptions. Annie and La Mancha and so on. But there isn't much. But why is so that? why? Because everyone is thinking about it uh, thinking about the theater as a sure thing bet. Hollywood suffers from very much the same thing. Uh, this year we're told it's going to be all revivals. Some body has decided that revivals are a sure thing, somebody is dead wrong. The only show in the last year or whatever that's selling out, chock-a-block, 101.7% last week and almost every week, is Kiss of the Spider-Woman. Why in hell am I not reading about other people embarking on dangerous in, uh, creative excursions? Because they don't see the lesson that's staring them at the face with, with that particular success. Instead, they go right back to, we're going to play a safe bet. Could we have more Torontos, you think? Could we have... Sure. Because Absolutely. Obviously, that's what we need. You well, we, we, we will. Obviously, I do not know what's <laughs> happening within our own country, but I would bet that there are similar, uh, similar projects. The only one I know about, I know firsthand because I've just been working there this year. But, of course, I express impatience. And, and uh, I cannot be chauvinistic. The best, the, the, the American musical is the best thing there is about musical theater. But it certainly isn't seeding its future. And that's about money. And, you know, some gentleman came up during our stretching break and said to me, but there are no composers and no, that's nonsense. What there are are not enough serious creative producers, and that's about money, because the money doesn't come from what we used to 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 uh, 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 identify as a creative producer. It comes from somebody with money. Mm -hmm. I think the loss of a creative. When you say creative producer, I think the the, the first creative. Is, is the operative That's word the there word. because we've lost so many who have just died. I mean, but that ends the answer No, they've been it. driven out of the theater. They no, haven't both, died. Right. Okay. Well, they've been driven out. We've lost directors. They've died. Mm -hmm. Creative producers have been driven out of the theater. Why do you think so? Because I was a creative producer. No. 
because I wouldn't know how to raise money standing on my head, stark naked in Times Square. All I had to do was raise a little bit of money from a lot of loving people who adored the theater. There are fewer of those, and I could not come up with $10 million today with my reputation, not remotely. And I wouldn't know how to go about it because I wouldn't want to make, make the moves you have to make to get that kind of money. So you're saying the costs have driven people the out? The costs have driven the right people out. Now, there are exceptions, mm -hmm. but we're not there here to talk about yes. exceptions. But that's why we keep getting back to the costs. Everything, exactly. that's the cost of the ticket price. And, and people want to go to the theater, but the ticket is, is too expensive. And I can no longer afford The producers will tell us over and over again that it has to be that. With inflation, that's what it costs. Therefore, we can't take a chance, quote, unquote. That's the reason we can't. We have to have no, but See, the point is, it's this whole definition of what chance is. And, and the prudency in this exercise, you know, in terms of what we're doing, has been changed. And it's because I've insisted on a, on a, on a series of rigidities in this, in this business, this industry, that be imposed. And that is that one doesn't go from John and Terrence and Fred and Hal Prince saying, I want to do Kiss of the Spider Woman, to say, here's seven and a half million dollars, let's go do it, or ten million dollars. There is an intelligent, rational process to this. You don't mind getting to the end cost if you know when you're going to get there that you've got something that has an, a likelihood, not a guarantee, but a likelihood of success creatively and in terms of its commercial appeal. But it's a question of how you, you know, you propose going those various steps, and that's why doing what we did in Toronto was so useful, going to London again was so useful, and each one of those uh, uh, processes uh, cost a little bit more money, but ultimately wasn't rolling the complete payload on one seven-week or ten-week excursion on Broadway. And I think that's ultimately where the, the business has gone to. It certainly allows Hal and the creative people to be able to stand back and look at the painting and see where more work has to be done on the canvas. That you have to do to provide. But it then, you know, there, there's, but there is a limit to how far that has to go while you're still in that developmental process. But, but truth to tell, isn't it, uh, uh, isn't it true that in your head, uh, although you've been able to do it and you've had the success to do it, uh, that the, the costs of these things don't seem to be real world. They seem to be out of whack with the rest of life. Yeah, but I, I <laughs> the good news is I came from the movie business and went oh, into the theater, right. okay? All right. That's the Fair good enough. news, yes. you understand? I understand. <laughs> I do so indeed. $70 million, $70 million negatives for a movie like Jurassic Park, I can do... 10 kids of the spider womans and have a a lot better time and b have a, a much greater chance of, of ending up with a bigger financial return so i i think it's all a question of of, of relativity yeah uh, uh, relativity in terms of this industry and and the the fact of the matter is that people don't make money up front in theater and you know when you're still dealing with seven and a half million dollar costs given the ultimate values on an international basis I think it's a very, very exciting investment to be, to be making if you're working with responsible people and if you're approaching the business, you know, with the commitment and not suggesting that your only role, certainly from the producing standpoint, is to bring people together in a room and say, okay, I need 150 units of $10,000 each. Please give me your commitment. Because I don't think it works that way. And I think 
the success of musical theater is is important, you know, f by having a strong producer involved with the interfacing of all of this, as it is to have a strong creative constituency in every other aspect. I'm going to uh, interrupt you now because there's some questions from the audience, and I, I know that they're anxious to get started on them. Would you come on? Hi, my name is Kevin Bell. My question is from Mr. Prince. Could you discuss your staging outlooks on Kiss of the Spider Woman, especially in blending the reality and the fantasy elements, and perhaps in turn how that uh, influenced the stage design of the show? Yeah, I could. That's a biggie. Uh, I. I'm very uh, uh, fond of uh, of uh, what that overused phrase, magic realism. I love all those books, Iende and so on. I think they're just great. And and uh, and uh, when we started to work on the show, a model for for the 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 uh, where we were headed in terms of marrying the real and the and the escapist was a television show, curiously enough, called The Singing Detective. And I, that's, that's going to be a short-circuit answer, but it's probably not a bad one. If you think about the way that happened, the, the bravery and audacity and uniqueness of how, how they, uh, he melded reality in the hospital room and, and music and how, uh, how, uh, how successful that was, you'll see that we did talk about that and, and it did inform first and major step we took, and certainly with respect to design as well. Thank you. Thank you. Um, my name is Alexandra, and I have a question for Mr. Prince. Uh, do you continue to rehearse the show once the show is opened? Yesterday. Oh. <laughs> I'm glad to say yesterday and later today I'm rehearsing. Yeah, you have. Is that unusual? Uh, I think it's, it's, uh, I, I, I'm not equipped to say about directors today, but I have to tell you, when I was a producer and not a director, uh, it always drove me crazy that I could never get the director back to work on the show. And then when I wanted to, I'd say, I, I'd say to Jerry Robbins, but I, I think I'm going to be a director, and I think I know what I'm doing. Please let me work on Fiddler on the Roof. It's falling apart here. And he would say no, and yet he wouldn't come around. And it drove me nuts. And then I used to watch George Abbott come into the wing and stand there and look over the stage manager's shoulder and give notes for five minutes and then go back looking at the show from this tunnel vision. So uh, being a frustrated producer at that point, uh, once I became a director, I knew I had a responsibility to keep the shows up. And I do. Thank you. Hi, I'm Amy Hirsch from Backstage Newspaper. I wanted to ask the panel, uh, how powerful are the reviews of the New York Times? And is it the New York Times itself, or is it the single chief drama critic? And I should tell you, I asked this question of a number of people a few weeks ago for an article, and no producers would call me back about it. However, critics would talk about it, and an English producer would. would and you I'm say just the first part of what you said again. How powerful are the reviews in the New York Times, and is it? Is it the newspaper itself that's the power, or is it the single person? I, I think we can answer that. It's the newspaper itself. It doesn't matter who the critic is on it. It's a newspaper. And now, if you want to add to that, I'm sorry. I didn't want to take over. But No, I agree. I agree it's newspaper. I think that, that is the answer to it. Hi, my name is Thelma Pollard, and my question is for Mr. Dravinsky. What are the requirements to be a producer? I, I, they asked me that question um, 
in a uh, interview I did for Theater Week a couple of weeks ago that appeared. And uh, I think I, I summarize it by saying that you shouldn't be in the business without having an unequivocal passion for the, for the business in first instance, because it's hardly a business for the weak at heart. Um, but it, it, I think it is a, a unique combination of, of business acumen, uh, an artistic sense, a marketing sense, and the ability to act as a catalyst amongst people in order to ensure that the process moves forward instead of disintegrates through uh, potential conflicts dealing with the, uh, the inter interesting chemistry between people in the artistic sense of theater. Yeah. Are there any apprenticeship programs for a producer? <laughs> no, the best thing to do is try to be joined to the hip of one, and hopefully if you pick the right one, you'll be doing well. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. McNally, did Miss Rivera's casting have any influence on the book of Kiss? The what casting? Miss Rivera's casting. Uh, from the beginning, I'd always dreamed of uh, Cheetah uh, doing this part, so I was glad. And then John and Fred uh, backed me in that, so it was... It was very unanimous. Uh, the part needs a star, and to play it, I think, effectively, and we have one. Thank you. I wonder if Mr. Drabinsky would tell me if he, uh, how he or they pick their marketing teams, their publicity in there, and, uh, or, or do you do your, do you have it within your organization? I have a number of people. We have a big organization mm -hmm. of, uh, a half dozen publicity people, promotion people, and uh, three or four advertising people, as well as a number of boutique agencies that feed from the ideas that come, frankly, from me. And ultimately, all of the direction of the advertising and radio, TV, and newspaper comes out of my office. And, and it's out of Toronto, not out, out of, of Toronto. Toronto. Yeah. I was going to ask you, uh, how do you know what the proper marketing is for Vienna? As compared to the Well, I'm, it's not, Vienna's not like, I'm not in control of Vienna. I'm, we're not in control of Vienna in that sense, but, I mean, they're using the basic logo direction that we gave them. I mean, within a North American context, an English language context, I will take, you know, initiative. When we're dealing with uh, another culture, another language, another set of demographics, uh, we would defer to the... Uh, the country. Maybe. Hi, my name's Greg, and this is a question for Mr. Kander and Mr. Ebb. Could you tell us a little about your collaborative process writing a song? Sure. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> that was just it. <laughs> Since we write only for the theater uh, lately, uh, most of of the time, and of course, it's not. Uh, a, a total answer. You have received or are aware of the uh, material uh, that you're working on. It's either in form of an outline or the script itself, and there are specific moments that occur to you uh, would be musical uh, moments or opportunities for musical moments. And our uh, modus operandi, you'd say, is I would generally get an idea for uh, how, to, how to treat that moment. Uh, John, I then give that idea, or submit that idea, actually, to John, and then we both improvise 
uh, in, in words and music, uh, which we're getting pretty good at. And then and find a form uh, for, for that idea. And out of that form and endless polishing and rewriting uh, comes, pops the song or the moment or whatever it is uh, the assignment happens to be. <laughs> I, I, can I just say that I, I had spent the night one, one, one evening with, at Freddie's apartment, and they were working. And I had never witnessed anything like this in my life. I heard this full voice and this full piano. And, and I opened my door, and there was a performance going on in their workroom. And, and, and like that. The, the song was written, but it was done not like, what do you think about this? But Freddie was singing at the top of his lungs, mm -hmm. and John was playing with all fullness. <laughs> and it was just brilliant. I mean, it was very, very moving. It was a performance. Because you have given us so much pleasure through the years, I'm going to interrupt this discussion with something that I've been wanting to hear. When did you start working as a creative team together? What was the first show that you all worked, you and Cheetah, Mr. Prince? How did you, what was the well, first my, one? My first show with um, Freddie and John and Terrence was uh, mm -hmm. The Ring. The Ring. And uh, so that was our, our first yes. conversation. Yes. With the team? With the three, yes. With Johnny and Hal I, and Hal uh, had an experience with a show called Flora the Red Menace many, many years ago, 20-some-odd. Uh, how really they worked together in Westside. People. I'm sorry to interrupt this. We'll go on. Yes, I have another question for jo John and uh, Fred. Do either of you work independently? I'm sorry? <laughs> what? Do either of you work independently? We don't, uh, we wouldn't do a musical independently, but uh, I sometimes uh, will do a film score or a concert piece or something, and Fred will work on a television project or something separate, but I think the idea of, of going through the joys and nightmares of, of, of a full-scale musical is something that Fred and I would not be able to get through without each other. No, impossible. I couldn't think of that. I could write a, a special for Liza, or I could write Cheetah's Club Act, or something like that uh, without without John around, uh, with a reasonable amount of confidence that I was able to do that. But never, never a play or a musical. I wanted to uh, just uh, amplify the, the answer to the lady who asked how we work. Uh, the other, I'm sorry, uh, the, the other element that goes into our working together is that we write an awful lot of stuff that we throw away. And, uh, and you have to be willing to tear up your work uh, in order to be able to get to arrive at something that you, that you do like. Alex, we have one last statement from you on the musical comedy, the American musical comedy. We, it's, it, we have to stop this. It's oh. always too long. I can't stop it without hearing one word from you. <laughs> you mean a little optimism after all that. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I mean, we have absolutely no reason to be pessimistic. We, we've, had a, we've had a long and rugged journey getting here with Kiss of the Spider Woman, but it couldn't be more satisfying. I think it probably is the most satisfying uh, 
success that I've this ever been part of. This is not satisfying to me because I have to say goodbye. They've just said this is the, and the American Theatre Wing <laughs> seminars. So I'm working in the theater, and this seminar has been on the production of the Spider Woman, Kiss of the Spider Woman, that wonderful show that's playing in New York now. Thank you very much for being here, and I hope you'll be here again.